0: I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsor, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Hi and welcome to Data Futurology. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here today. In Data Futurology, we speak with leaders and executives from around the world that work in the data analytics, AI and machine learning space. In today's episode, we are speaking with the hosts of another podcast called AI Today. It has a very similar focus to Data Futurology. And I think the AI Today podcast is a fantastic podcast. We'll have some links for everyone to check it out. I encourage you guys to check it out. So we have Kathleen Walsh. She is the managing partner of CogniLytica, and she is also the host of the AI Today podcast. And also we have Ron Schmelzer, who is also a managing partner at CogniLytica and a host of the AI Today podcast. So please check out the podcast. And also during the podcast, they tell us a little bit about their CPM AI methodology, which is a methodology to run ML and AI projects in a way that's repeatable and you get more consistent results. And I know that a lot of people in the audience have been looking for how to solve that problem. So it's great that we get to discuss that with Ron and Kathleen. Thank you so much. Here's the episode with the host of the AI Today podcast. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Walch.
2: And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. And we have another fantastic podcast for you today. We have been talking, honestly, for the last couple hours (laughs) with Felipe Flores, who is the host of the Data Futurology podcast, which is a fantastic podcast, also really tackling a lot of the same issues that we talk about here on the AI Today podcast, which is really about making AI uh, an implementation reality. You know, we, we think about all of the sort of the promise and the hype and the theory of what we can do with AI, but of course, for those of you in our in our listening audience who are actually trying to put AI together, whether you're in the private sector, in large companies or small companies, or you're a consulting firm, or or you're working in the public sector, you know, in the governments. Uh, international, federal, state, local, or a government contractor, you know you're running into some real challenges of making AI work. And so a lot of what we do here on the AI Today podcast is, first of all, talk to the others who have been putting AI into practice and, and some of their issues and their challenges, but also talk about sort of some of the the challenges and the solutions, and you know, on that note, we are just so thrilled to have with us. as I mentioned Felipe Flores; he's the host of the Data Futurology podcast, a fantastic podcast that I listen to, and we will definitely be linking to in the show notes. So, Felipe, thank you so much for joining us on AI today.
0: Guys, are you kidding me? Thank you. This has been amazing. <laughs> and and um, just before we started recording, I was I was saying how um, how I I feel that we're so well aligned uh, in terms of that we want to um, bring. Content to the community that helps people get value out of AI, make more dreams a reality, and to to highlight different use cases, different challenges, bring different perspectives of how people have been overcoming these challenges, and and to to help the breach the gap between the AI hype and the AI reality uh, in a way that empowers people and helps them move AI forward in their organization and obviously from from the value side as well. So the um, our, our focus is definitely very well aligned and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing to spend some time with you guys.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we um, were also on Felipe's podcast, the Data Futurology podcast. And so we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes uh, so that our listeners can listen to our interview with you. It was a really incredible conversation. And you're right, we really are aligned. So I encourage our listeners to check that out. But I'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background, your podcast, and why you started your podcast.
0: Yeah, perfect. So um I'm, uh, I'll give you the, the, the sort of the quick version. So I'm originally from South America. I grew up in Chile, in the north part of Chile, in the driest desert in the world. So over there, it rains once every seven years and we get less than an inch of rain. Um, and so I grew up in a small mining town, 10,000 people. And um, I came to Australia when I was about 20 and um, started work and uh, I did kind of like odd jobs, then got into data and loved it. Um, and did about seven years of working in consulting, small and large businesses. Uh, then I started my own uh, analytics consulting company, um, did that for about five years, grew it to about 50 people. And then uh, we were doing uh, data-driven products online. Uh, we had two or three different products and we did also consulting, uh, which, which those consulting profits helped us hire people to uh, do the development of the products. I sold my part uh, this is over 10 years ago now. Oh, yeah. Um, no, maybe a bit less, but yeah, I'm getting old. And then um, I spent some time in finance and I was um, um, head of head of data science in um, one of the biggest banks in Australia. And that was a great opportunity to build a team and develop the, the culture and think of really interesting applications of how to use finance data, uh, particularly in the B2B space where people had like... People that that I care about and that care about me, they had kind of like warned me not to go into the B2B space because there's very little amount of transactions that happen every every year, and there's there's many many less customers, um, like orders of magnitudes less customers than what you have on the retail side. But what we end up ha- uh, finding is that you can leverage the retail data to do really interesting B2B work, and that that can feed back into the retail side. So that was a really nice uh, marriage. And then. Um, and then after finance, I moved into healthcare. So now I'm um, uh, head of data and technology for a, um, a healthcare AI startup uh, where we started at the um, start of last year. So in Jan 2020, uh, we got some seed funding uh, for from um, two companies, one in the Australia, one in Australia um, and then one in the U.S. Um, the U.S. is like a huge global brand. Uh, it's called Cigna. So they're in a health insurer. And... Um, yeah, both companies came together, put, uh, put some money, uh, some seed investment into uh, what's now Honeysuckle Health. And, um, and we started this business. We've got essentially three, three pillars. Where One, we have health management programs. So we help people when, recover after they um, have surgery or we help them with uh, mental health issues. Um, and we do that uh, with programs that are telephonic and digital. Uh, so that's been really interesting. That's first pillar. Second pillar is the contracting side. And this is part of what I love to see and what I've done. I've tried to do a lot with my career is to see kind of like how the hidden part of the world works. And that's why I was in finance. I was attracted to the B2B side because you get to see entire supply chains of businesses that um, that serve each other and businesses that you never heard about. Like who makes who makes the McDonald's hamburger McDonald's hamburger cases, like the, the cardboard cases, like we worked with those people. Um, so you get to see the hidden side of the world. In healthcare, the contracting piece is how um, payers or insurers um, um, agree how much they're gonna pay the providers. So the hospitals, the specialists, the family doctors. Um, and there's been historically a lot of information asymmetry in that space with like large hospitals, Um, uh, negotiating with small insurers or vice versa large insurers negotiating with small hospitals and that information asymmetry has led to um, really combative relationships and what we're doing is opening up the data having agreed metrics and everyone can see the same so that's our second pillar and then the third pillar is data science and analytics consulting so uh, we work with uh, with insurers with payers with government uh, and we provide a a lot of um, consulting pieces that go from sort of population health strategy on, on the strategic side, that that is to say, what are the future healthcare needs and costs of the population? And then how do we make that population healthier over time? Um, and then on the other end, it's uh, things like data capture, where we have a lot of surveys, where we ask people to give us the um, information about their recovery and their outcomes and how they're feeling about the surgery or the procedure that they had for us to create the feedback loops in the healthcare system um, where we can help uh, people have journeys that help them become healthier. So that's um, what I've been doing the last couple of years. But then about four years ago, maybe just a bit less, in 2018, start of 2018, I started data Futurology. So I was uh, working in the bank at the time. And um, um, the reason kind of what happened, kind of a bit embarrassing, but uh, to admit that um, I um, I was getting married and my wife and I were planning a long honeymoon. And we thought like maybe six months, maybe 12 months, we'll see what happens. And we're going to go for a long, for a long honeymoon. And, um, I was having a chat with my wife and I was like, you know, we're going to have all this time off. What the hell am I going to do? And she was like, you're a jerk. No. <laughs> she was like, um, she was like, well, if you, uh, you like listening to podcasts so much, uh, why don't you start one? And, um, and I was like, yeah, that sounds really great. So um, before we left Australia, I interviewed, I think about a dozen people that I knew and, and admired in the industry, um, released those. And, and then what I said is like, wherever we go in this honeymoon, I'm gonna reach out to people that live locally, that are um, experts in, the, in this field and ML, AI, and that they're, they're leaders and that can help us uh, with the, the challenges and the use cases as we were talking before. And uh, as we traveled for those six months, I interviewed people everywhere we went, in Japan, all over Europe. And then I was getting people from other parts of the world. And I thought I was just going to do it for six months. Um, But I thought when we came back to Australia, I'll wrap it up. And then what happened is we came back uh, and uh, um, we had uh, just under 5,000 listeners at that point. And um, during that time that we were away, we started getting um, some sponsors as well, which was helping because um, at the beginning, I always say I didn't know what I was doing, and I was spending a little time uh, doing this when we were on the honeymoon. Um, so getting some sponsors helped, like start a team. Um, and then when we came back to Australia, um, the first two weeks that um, we didn't release a podcast, we started getting messages to be like, "Hey, what's going on? Um, where's 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 my podcast?" So I was like, "Okay, yeah, we uh, we better continue." Um, and that's been that's been great. Like a. a, a wonderful, amazing journey, um, where I get to speak with amazing people from around the world, like you guys. And, and I've been so, um, so grateful and, uh, so fortunate about how, uh, where this has taken, uh, the conversations and the ability to give back to the community has been incredible. And, uh, I think that we're definitely aligned in wanting to help people get more value out of, out of AI and, and, um, and be able to help their organizations uh, increase the adoption, advance the use of AI, and really make a difference in, in this world. Um, so it's it's been amazing to be able to do that. Uh, I know you guys have been running longer. I think um, you guys started in September 2017. So I got to say congratulations on your fourth birthday. And it's amazing to spend time with you guys. And, um, yeah, I'm so, so happy to be here.
2: Yeah, that's a fantastic story. Actually, it's really nice connecting a lot of dots. We have uh, mining in Chile in the Atacama Desert. And you got Australia and the finance world in the six month honeymoon, which I think a lot of people will be like, wow, Uh, that's not a very
1: envious.
2: So um, I, I, mean, I think that's fantastic. And you're right. I mean, your podcast really does cover a lot of great territory. And, you know, there's, there's no, no real competition among podcasters. You really do encourage our listeners to really tune in uh, to that and really catch up. I actually want to go uh, talk about a different two-letter acronym. We spent a lot of time talking about AI, right, and sort of making all that work. Um, but a lot of people, especially, you know, they're finding that a lot of the putting AI in practice is pretty mundane. It's not nearly like making autonomous robots and self-driving vehicles. A lot of it really looks like predictive analytics and pattern and anomaly recognition, all the things that we like to talk about in our various seven patterns. Um, but uh, people may be like, hey, wait a second here. Uh, we've done some of this stuff before, you know, some of this data science, data analytics. It looks a lot like BI, you know, business intelligence. So maybe you could talk a little bit about cuz I know you've you've had some of the conversations that we have not had in our podcast with folks who are sort of implementing maybe you know coming from traditional bi traditional data analytics kind of how do you see these these concepts marrying as bi gone away is ai repl- or kind of where, where where are we with with all that
0: Yeah that's that is great I think I think that there's um there's so much value in 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 bi there's um there's it's it's something that I think continues to deliver value and will continue to to deliver value I think that there's um, there's a lot of uh, because of the the data space has been around for such a long time like if we think about the first databases being built 40 50 years ago there's been a, a lot of a lot of IP and knowledge that has been developed that it's still very relevant and valuable today sometimes we are uh, sometimes as an industry when we try to keep up with the latest we we um, we sometimes go too far or throw the baby out with the bathwater, and then we would don't want to know anything about what happened in the past. When there's there's bits that we can cherry pick that add a lot of a lot of value. Some of that sits in data warehousing, for example, um, and and what data warehouse can teach us about building modern data pipelines. Um, and and then another space is in in BI, where I think that. Now, if we grab uh, business intelligence and we marry that with AI, um, I think that the, the benefits uh, that, are provide, that can be provided to, to industry is huge. Um, so what I mean by that is, uh, for example, back when I had my consulting business, one of our first products, uh, data-driven products, we had uh, this marriage of BI and AI uh, for small to medium businesses where companies at the time, we uh, would upload their company financials and we would give them a set of CAN reports. So the BI piece and on, on every, every chart, we would do predictions. So the AI part, we would show them um, the, the forecast, we would give them um, the key drivers. So out of the data that they had uploaded, what were the key drivers that were um, predictive for this particular chart? And um, we would give them outliers, anomaly detection, and and give them kind of like that next level of of information. Um, But it was all presented uh, in in a BI tool. Um, Now that's something that, um, as a kind of like as a playbook, that's something that I've implemented in a few other industries uh, since, like in retail, in finance, and definitely now in in healthcare. and, and that's, that's just from my, from my experience, but from what we're seeing in the market, there's more and more AI capabilities that are um, kind of like sneaking into, into, uh, into the world of BI and being delivered through BI. And sometimes that's like um, uh, natural text uh, recognition and be able to interact uh, in, in that manner with a BI tool that instead of creating the, the charts in a manual way, Now people are able to um, ask, essentially ask questions or or do the creation of charts um, by by typing. And sometimes that typing is like, where am I where am I getting my best sales in the last quarter by uh, by zip code? And and then that information comes up to you. So um, AI is helping. BI get more embedded in more places, make it more accessible, and I think that there's there's a lot more to to give in the in that space. Um, focus, when you focus on the on the human to computer interaction, um, there's there's a lot more that we can do there.
1: Yeah, those are some great insights. I know in conversations that we've had, we've started talking about BI more and more, uh, you know, from our early days when we started the podcast in 2017, people weren't talking about BI and AI as much. So, you know, great insights there. And I know that you've had, uh, you know, the opportunity to interview many guests on your podcast and also work in industry and be able to see things firsthand. So what are you seeing as some of the biggest trends emerging in data and data science today?
0: Uh, from, from my perspective oh, quite a few but from my perspective uh, at the moment uh, people are wanting to get uh, value from AI is, is a, a key piece. Um, as we we're, were discussing uh, before there's been a, a high failure rate of, um, of projects in, in the space uh, and people, people are wondering like what do we do better about this what do we do what do we do better Some of that focus is going to um, what's called ml ops So essentially creating a a path for your AI product to get to the customer. Um, And and that comes with with a a methodology. There's been a lot of of concepts and approaches have been borrowed from software development or software engineering, particularly from the DevOps world where we want uh, continuous integration, continuous development, sorry, continuous deployment. And in our world, we also need to do continuous testing. Uh, which, which essentially that means being able to have um, a system that where we can have a champion and challenger approach to deploying models, where data scientists can be working on improving a model and can sort of put them in the pipeline. Both models get run on. Uh, the same data and the results compared. and then when there's a new champion that, that, um, that model gets released and, it, in, and that it's released in a stage manner in your production environment and that once it's in production, there's a, a bunch of metrics that need to be monitored that you want to, um, that you want to know about your model when it starts degrading in, in say quality or accuracy, or whatever the, the model is striving to, to improve or to uh, predict. You want to track how that's going and then know when the model needs to be retrained. And if it can't be retrained and improved automatically, then uh, for the the platform to create an alert essentially to get um, human intervention to come in and improve the the data set. So that's something that for the people that, for organizations that had that type of system um, in place before COVID, that means that they had a huge start because COVID hit and essentially all our predictive models um that interact with customers down the drain like it was a never seen before world in the time that we've been digital um so it meant that a lot of our predictive models didn't apply anymore didn't work so if you had those alerts that monitoring and alerts in place you would know first essentially and you and if it needed in this case it did need manual intervention you could do that first um and and sometimes it was because the intervention was required because there was too much of, to the upside, uh, as in like too many customers were coming to, to the website and, and everything was being bought online and, and the business needed to, you needed to alert that so the business could adjust their physical supply chains, their orders to, to manage that. Sometimes it was um, improving the models because of the downside of all the customers that had moved. That for example, in healthcare, we saw a lot of um, people, st- a, a huge reduction in elective surgeries. So things that maybe people needed a hip replacement or a knee replacement, and those are stopped and people decided to wait a long time during COVID, and now it's coming back up.
2: Yeah, that's really, really great insight. And I I think you're right. I mean, a lot of sort of the traditional models have really been thrown out. Supply chains around the world have been completely disrupted. Labor change, you talked about that. Healthcare, education, working from home, office real estate, transportation, commuting, telecommunication, the use of internet. Honestly, what has not been impacted? I think that's. I think I just talked about almost everything, uh, but you know, um, we do need to find ways. that Companies do need to respond and need to be agile, and we're going to have to come out of this. Hopefully, this will motivate people to pay much more attention uh, to their data and ways to basically gain insights from it. So, actually, that's one of the things that that we you know. I'd really like to ask you about. You know, um, one of the things you do when, you, especially on the podcast, and the other things you've been involved in. You're involved in a lot of stuff down there in Australia <laughs> with data science. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> Um, you get the opportunity to really interview a lot of leaders and implementers in AI and data science and in business intelligence. So, what are you seeing? As what are you hearing? As some of the common themes, the common data themes, and maybe even some surprising insights that some of your your guests have brought up uh, in any in any of your conversations.
0: Yeah, uh, amazing. And the um, what the ones that have had that. Um, that I that stick with me, I think are, are the and definitely the ones that I that I seek out is to um, is people that are different to me, different different in terms of their their background, their journey, um, and um, their their industry experience. or uh, Anything that's that's different, I'm really really um attracted to in terms of um, uh, learning learning from that. Um, and so, so, for example, like some of those, we had um, the, the CTO from NASA um, came on the show and he was talking and he, like, he wrote a book on deep learning and he was telling us about how they use online learning, uh, online reinforcement learning in the Mars Rover. Um, and, and how, like, because of the, the constraints of essentially being in space, the, the compute was limited, the memory was limited, and that it had to be uh, learning online and then discarding the data, but, um, but in a way that then it can continue to improve um, as, as it's exploring this, this new world. Like stuff like that is, is amazing. Um, the other ones that I love is the, the, human, um, the human side and how to better incentivize, better motivate, better um, drive adoption is, is a, a key piece that, that I love. Um, one of the ones that, that I've mentioned before is in the energy space where an LNG gas plant um, was asking people whether they wanted to know how, to, how they have um, improved the efficacy of, of the plant. So essentially the, what they were showing in the recommendations was to say, Ron, in this shift two weeks ago, you had this plant running at 2% uh, better output, would you like to know what you did? And they had this opt-in model um, for the humans after the AI had done kind of like all the work to create their recommendations. And by having this opt-in model that they had in a staged approach, um, they got huge, huge adoption. They got a lot of feedback during that time. They were able to improve uh, the product and how it worked. They went from comparing you versus you for a year to comparing um, you versus everyone for another year. But in both of those cases, you had to opt in to find that out. Um, and then once they had two years of that, they went to uh, an open uh, suggestion that everyone could see. So it's it's um, it's things things like that I love, and that kind of like adoption is in the last mile. Um, the other big piece that I love is seeing the, the strategy side and that, um, strategy is kind of like, in a in a one line, it's saying, where do you want to be? Where are you today? And then what's the road to, to get there? And we've had people that have brought in really interesting frameworks about how to create a, a data analytics strategy that supports the business strategy. So you, you always start with the business strategy and what the company wants to achieve. And then how do you, how do you plug into that in a way that, Uh, it helps the stakeholders get a a list of business problems that then you can start to, um, to attack with these technology and tools that we have at our disposal.
1: Yeah, that's really incredible. You know, and we always say that too. Our listeners have heard us talk many times about CPM AI methodology, which is the best practices for doing AI right. And we talk about, how you start with business understanding. So you're right. We need to make sure that that's what we're doing because if you're not solving a business problem, then don't do it. <laughs> you're going to waste a lot of time and resources and money. And you're going to you know, go down this rabbit hole to build this... Uh, AI application that really nobody's using and it's not solving a problem. So don't do it. So great. More validation. Start with your business understanding first. So this has been an incredible podcast and incredible discussion. As I mentioned to our listeners, we were also on the Data Futurology podcast as well. So I'll link to that in the show notes. And I um, really do encourage you to check that out. We had some great discussions there on all things related to AI. So uh, you know that was incredible. But We always like to end our podcast interviews with a final question that we ask all our guests because we get such varied results or, you know, responses, no matter how many times we've asked this. Some can be common themes, but, you know, the examples that they give and their responses really do vary. So as a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to organizations and beyond?
0: Great, great question. Um, So I think that as, as we... As we continue to, to mature um, in our adoption of use and use of AI, I think that um, everyone's going to become an AI practitioner uh, in the same way that everyone has become a computer practitioner. So if you think about 30 years ago, um, there were some people that knew how to use computers, and largely people didn't know how to use computers. I think that we're sim- going to a similar path with AI, and to do that, it means that AI needs to be more accessible, more automated, easier to to understand, both understand, use, deploy. Um, and that the key that the key components, in my view, that are going to help us there is to um, help people understand the that the the data is the the input to to the problems that they need to. To solve, um, be very clear about the um, what they're trying to predict or optimize, like the, the variable that they're trying to, to go with, and then have some really interesting and some really proven methods to deploy that to, to the users. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot of improvement and automation that will help um, drive those forward and essentially support, support those areas. Um, and so as, as long as people understand that, they'll be able to play in the AI space, add value in the AI space because of the, um, the automation that has been coming. And for example, some of that automation looks like AutoML tools that you have um, open source alternatives like Teapot or PyCaret. And then obviously you have um, some, some software vendors in that space that that is going to make it and continues to make it a lot easier to create and deploy a machine learning models. So then, um, the, the human component that we all need to focus on is around the business strategy, the business problem, uh, getting the right uh, data, thinking about the, the data set, thinking about that, um, that target variable that you're trying to predict and put that in more problems, more, um, more solutions. Um, and then, um, with increased automation, we're definitely going to a world where, in, 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 um, you know what they say, like uh, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And in one example of that is, um, there's there's algorithms where you can you can describe a a web page, for example, and have an AI build it. Um, so then we're going to have that for for web apps, for software, and then for computer interaction, it's going to be much more. Um, Human, um, human-led. Well, um, it's going to be able to converse much more naturally with humans, and as a result, there's going to be a lot more innovation and a lot more needs that need to be fulfilled through that process because our wants have no end. So I think that the, the space is um, is super exciting. More, more automation, um, better human-to-computer interfaces, and more space for us to be really creative uh, with with our talents and and be more human.
2: That's fantastic. Well, that's a great answer. We love that, like more automation, be more human. It's funny, we're talking about adding machine intelligence and the answer is be more human. So that's fantastic. So, well, really a big thing. We did mention, talk a little bit about methodology. We didn't have time too much to talk about it on this particular podcast. I'm just being mindful of our host's time here, guest's time here. But for those of you who are listening to us who want to be more informed about doing AI rights, uh, go to courses dot Cognolitica Dot com. That's courses dot c o g n i l y t i c a com. We have certifications on a variety of levels for doing uh, AI, AI methodology, as well as courses for ethical and responsible AI. That's the other part of doing AI right. It's not just running your projects right and doing it right to be successful. It's also doing it right to stay on the right side of your customers and your employees and the government and your society and all that. Be do right. So I uh, on that. That note, I really want to thank so much our host. I have a feeling we will be seeing you on another podcast because um we will definitely have oh, yeah. a lot. Talk about here. So again, a big thank you to our guest uh, Felipe Flores, uh, who is uh, with. uh, Actually, we just heard a little bit about his his startup. He's got their uh, Honeysuckle Health out there in Australia, uh, but also, as you know, the host of the Data Futurology podcast, which we will be linking. So, thank you again so much for joining us.
0: Thank you, guys. This has been amazing, and uh, yeah, looking forward to releasing the episode of Data Futurology, hearing this one, and then for us to do more collaborations together in the future. Thank you to all your audience. Uh, Thanks everyone for listening and hope to see you guys next time.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. We had a great time on your podcast and also interviewing you on AI Today as well. And listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Well, as always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes, including a link to the Data Futurology podcast, as well as the specific episode that Ron and I were both on. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next episode.
2: We've been focusing on AI today on the challenges of of really making AI work for for organizations of all sizes. And we've certainly even interviewed, you know, folks from like the largest of of banks and finance and retail, healthcare, automotive, manufacturing, pharmaceutical. But we you know we like talking to small companies, like the three or four person organizations trying to make it work. The challenges really aren't, aren't uh, that much different. So I guess, I guess we're starting with the interview on data, Futurology, like we could start there. Let's right. do that. This is
0: great. And um, I love, I love what you were saying about um, talking about the, almost like the the possibilities of AI or the, the hype and the reality and how to bridge that gap um, that, that is awesome.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, so, so maybe, maybe this is a good time for Kathleen to sort of come on here and, and talk about that because um, lately we've been on a little bit of a kick uh, uh, big, uh, on methodology, mainly yeah. because the technology is fine. I mean, you just lots of great choices for for doing all the various different patterns of AI. So, but we've been hearing about these high failure rates and and we've been doing these interviews with these CEOs and the CDOs and the chief information officers and all that. And they're telling us, oh, well, we're having all these troubles. And a lot of it has nothing to do with the technology. A lot right. of it has to do with the way the way people are doing it, not what they're doing.
1: Right. Kathleen? Exactly. So, you know, as Ron mentioned, we've talked to a lot of. Different organizations, lots of people from Fortune 1000 organizations, to say, "Hey, how are you running these projects? And you know, what roadblocks are you running into, and why are they failing, um, or what you know, why are they not being adopted as broadly as they should?" And it really comes down to some fundamental issues around methodology, and they are not using best practices methodologies. And we're advocates at Cognolytica, we're advocates for the CPM AI methodology. So it's Cognitive Project Management for AI methodology. And it's really just, you know, a methodology is a set of steps on how you should run your projects so that it can be repeatable, that it's very open and transparent and people know how you are running it so that if you want to hire into the organization or you have movement within your organization, people know how you're running these projects. And if somebody leaves, then all of that knowledge didn't leave with them in their head and you're able to transfer it and continue to run these projects. So what we found is that a lot of these pro- these companies are running projects ad hoc and don't yeah. have a best practices methodology in place. That can be incredibly frightening and it also is incredibly wasteful because they're wasting resources and time and money. And then yeah, no duh your project's going to fail and then <laughs> you know and then you're not going to want to get buy in for the next project. So we're big advocates of the cognitive project management for AI methodology, but just adopt a methodology please
0: hundred mm-hmm. percent I I love that the um the the way that I think about it is like AI is growing up but it hasn't got a job yet and by that I mean like it's not yet giving the returns, like the financial returns. And that's because there's, there is that such high failure rate, like over, um, essentially like some, some articles and some studies say like over 85% of both, um, AI projects are failing. Um, and so having more, uh, standardized approaches is definitely the, the key. Um, and yeah, people, people are really, um, or well, at least from what I'm saying, all the focus is about that, getting value from AI, getting wider use, wider adoption, and be able to have a consistent rate of successful projects.
1: I think yeah. that people get so excited about these projects and the possibility of what if and you know what, what it could possibly do that they really jump the gun and just get started uh, We regularly get asked you know do you start with a business understanding so are you trying to solve an actual problem or a data under a data understanding making sure that you have the actual data And we go well if you look at the CPM AI methodology it says start with a business understanding because if you're not actually solving a problem then don't do it right mm-hmm. We always say don't do AI just yep. to do AI. So, make sure that you're actually solving a real business problem. And within the methodology, we talk about this AI go, no go. It's a nine factor decision chart. And you need to make sure that you're answering yes to all of these questions before you're ready to move forward with your project. So, one of the questions is, you know, are you solving an actual business problem? But another question that you need to answer is, are you going to actually get buy in and adoption from the stakeholders that are meant to use your? new um you know ai solution and if the answer is no then don't do it. So you know you need to go through this checklist and make sure that you're actually um have everything yes to move forward. Otherwise you're not ready to begin doesn't mean you can't but means maybe you're not ready to begin or you're not starting with the correct problem. So um you know we always say that's really important and i think that a lot of organizations also kind of get lost in that you know excitement and they just want to start something and they're so excited that they Kind of don't answer these fundamental, you know, what what problem am I really trying to solve?
0: Hundred percent, yeah, definitely happens um, all all the time. It's and it, it has happened to you know, like the best people out there. Um, it, it, like I've definitely made those mistakes in the past. And and what what I what I see is that the the AI community, sort of uh, at least in industry, grew up from or is growing up from this cottage industry where um, a, lot of, um, a lot of leaders and a lot of business people were seeing AI as the, the, magic, um, the magic bullet or uh, the silver bullet that could do anything. Um, and the, the hype definitely started to get the, the best out of people. But then when AI is in organizations, for a long time, I feel like people were not engaging with it, enough. And by by, I, by this, I mean the, the organization at large, they were kind of saying, if we keep these data scientists, these AI specialists, kind of like in the corner, they'll work on cool stuff. And then that's just going to come and revolutionize our business. Um, and sometimes it's been the the mathematical speak around AI that has provided barriers, which people haven't wanted to, to jump over. Um, and now as it's becoming more and more um, adopted and spoken about, people are, people are realizing like, it's not that hard. It's not magic. And we need to put some, some processes around it, some governance mm-hmm. around it, get a better understanding and help it help it mature. So then we have that, that consistent pipeline. Um, from the specialist perspective, I find that a lot of times people want to continue their their specialization and, um, and and it's normal human nature to double down what your strengths are on what your strengths are. So if you're good at something, just double down and um, and as a well, and then when we look at it from a perspective of getting value from AI, there's a lot of work that needs to be done before the project uh, or before the technical parts of the project start. Right. Um, there's the technical delivery, and then there's a lot of work that needs to be done after the fact. And I think those are the areas that we're really um, across the board. The, They're areas that we're really fortifying as we're as we're improving. And I love the I love the perspective that you guys have of starting with the business problem, hundred percent, hundred percent, and and um, especially that business problem will ideally be aligned to the to the strategy to the strategy of the organization and be supporting that from a from a, a business problem perspective, and then you want to um, essentially translate that to a data problem that gets gets delivered in a a way um, that that not guarantees, but that improves the chance of success as a project. Um, Once that's done, then you go into the adoption side. So whose lives are gonna change as a result of this being rolled out? Whose day is gonna look different? And can we have them chipping in Uh, their thoughts and perspectives as we're doing the project because afterwards we're like the only way that we're going to get value from this thing is if people are interacting with it using it liking it um, and if it improves their their lives so sometimes it's obviously um, assisting people making decisions or assisting with some automation Um, sometimes those people are inside the company or inside the organization sometimes they're outside but how do we get those people involved um, in the piece kind of like after the the delivery? Um, And obviously at at the moment, there's a lot of, a lot of focus on how do we speed up that, that delivery side? So all the, the MLOps perspective, where the way that I think about it is that we have, and we're creating like these AI factories, like Mm -hmm. where if, if AI was a shoe or a tangible object, we would have a factory that makes the, the product makes the shoe, and then we would have a supply chain that gets it to the customer. So we are definitely made a lot of a lot of inroads. In my mind, we made a lot of inroads in the factory in the in the production, production producing the AI product, and now we're focusing a lot on improving the supply chain. So we have these these roads, the supply chains, to get the product to the end customer. Um, and I think that's also going to help the the. The adoption of AI products, the speed of innovation, um, help us ingrate more value from um, um, from AI. And but the way that that's done comes down to what you were saying, Kathleen. Like it's it's about the methodology and how do you make it repeatable and consistent, so then you can continue to get value. Um, and then what's in with it once it's in with the customer? Yeah, it's all about getting that that adoption up.
2: Yeah, I think that's the that's the surprising thing for us in these in these failures, which is that well, where where are things failing? Is it mismatched expectations that people are expecting the solution to do one thing and it's really doing something else, and therefore, uh, you know, they're having trouble with it? Or is it that they're having trouble getting started because it's it's trying to bite off too much, you know, boil the ocean? Yeah. Which is oh my goodness, we need petabytes of data. Oh my goodness, this data needs to be labeled. Oh my goodness, this data is not clean. Now it's like, now this little project becomes this gigantic project. They're like, we're not going to look. We, we, we're we three months into this thing. We didn't realize how bad the data was, or we don't have the data. We need to do the labeling. And then they stop. And then it's like, wait a second. Isn't iteration a best practice? Right? It is. Agile is a best practice. Let's not I mean, okay, we, if we need to do this big problem, how can we chop the big problem into smaller problems. And of course, ironically, when you do that, that lowers, that's that makes the data set that you need much more manageable because we're not trying to do the whole thing. We're just trying to do a small bit. That makes it much easier to, to clean. That makes it much easier to, to augment. And then I can prove in a, if, if the small version of the problem can't provide return, then, you know, the larger <laughs> problem is not going to do anything. So iteration, right? We say, think big, start small, iterate often. I can uh, see this. I love yeah. it.
0: Like, yeah, that... Speaks to my heart because I think as as data scientists we we are um we our natural tendency is to go big um, go fancy we want all the data right now please uh, we want to be using the the latest techniques and and that's that's where techni- that's where we see our challenges in the in the technical part we want to be deploying uh, for the fastest response time. Um, so yeah, more, more data, um, cooler algorithms and faster response times on the deployments are the things that get the data scientists excited. So they naturally go there. Um, also it's, it's, in my view, and this is just one dude's opinion but I think that the um, data scientists and AI specialists are so highly trained people. And I think our, our education system is geared for um, getting people to aim for perfection in the mm. first go. So essentially like your assignment, your exams, um, like that you get one shot and it needs to be as good as you can make it. Um, so there's a lot of pressure. And then when we come into um, corporate world, turns out that we have a completely different way of working. We can, we can iterate, we can start small. If, if there is no solution today, then almost any automated solution is better and and that means that we can start. We can start with the dumbest model that produces okay results, which can be done. You know, like in in a day. Like it's it's um, once the problem has been has been defined and there's been agreement and there's that's what I was saying before. That the, and, and I know that, that you guys think the same. The pre work that needs to happen before getting to the technical bit it's so important because then once you hone in into what actually you want to solve um, as a as a business problem and then. Um, you shrink down the the scope um, to make it easy to overcome as a a barrier, then then you're cooking. Like then then you're going, you get something out there, you see how you can improve. And um, what I always say to people is that if if somebody thinks that the the full-blown solution is going to provide so much value, people are convinced, they're like, no, our MVP needs to be like this huge. I'm like if you're so convinced that the whole shebang is gonna be so valuable, let's just take one component, and if if the big piece is so valuable, then a small component has to be valuable as well. So let's let's prove this small component, and if it does, then we know that we're um, on the money and it's worthwhile continuing to to invest. Um, so yeah, sometimes um, like sometimes a um, like a tree-based model that um that you can do very quickly is is gets you a lot of the way there um and personally i'm i'm a huge fan of of of, um of tree-based models of random forest um i think it's got like so much beauty built into it um and it's yeah definitely always my my first
2: nothing wrong with the boosted trees man they they, they work really well
0: (laughs) yeah yeah boosted trees are amazing Um, yeah the the um i've over over the years, I've I've gotten um, and and ah like the the AI world is so so vast and, and and expansive that yeah everyone gets kind of like their um their area of understanding that they kind of refine over time um, and uh, yeah f- for me I've spent I've spent a lot of time with with trees and then one of some of the things that I've that I've gotten um, out of random forest is is um, Using ML for insights mm-hmm. instead of prediction. So, um, so with 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 prediction, obviously you want to watch out for things like uh, like overfitting, and you want to make sure that your algorithm um, is the most accurate and um, and and that's kind of like the I feel like the traditional path of of AI or the most discussed path. There's there's in my view, there's a whole set of other applications, which is AI for insights, where um, essentially you're throwing the data at, at the model and then you're interrogating the interrogating the model in creative ways to say, what have you learned about this data that can help me further my understanding or look for things that I didn't know um, that were in there? Um, so what, one, one example um, that I've used um, a lot of times is... Um, in applications, it started with applications in um, in retail. So we had retail customers with a number of uh, or store of stores, and in there, according to any measure that you want, it can be revenue, profit, or loyalty, anything, uh, experience, and PS. There will be always like high performing and low performing stores. Um, and what we would do is try to using ML for insights. We would seek to uh, predict or optimize that metric that we care about, say profit. And then um, we would look at, uh, and then we would create measures of similarity. So measures of similarity can be clustering, kind of like at the, at the base level, uh, as in unsupervised uh, clustering. And then you can move into supervised techniques that allow you to create clustering. And one of the ones that Random Forest does is gives you the proximity metrics, which when you run, hundreds of trees, say 500 trees, the proximity matrix tells you how many times these two stores ended up in the same leaf node of one of the trees. So then if you run 500 trees and you got like 400 times, they ended up in the same leaf node, you divide by 500 and you get a percentage and you're like, well, 80% of the time they were in the same same leaf node. Therefore, kind of like the the assumption is that they're 80% similar, these two stores. But if one of those stores is a top-performing store and one of the other stores is a bottom-performing store, then what you can do is look in your data at the differences because most of the data for those two stores is going to be the same or very similar, and a few data points are going to be very different. So then you look at those and you highlight those data points that are very different between the two, and you go most things, and, and, and like I've used this in, in so many industries after, after – um, after doing it for the first time um where you go when all these data points there these two stores are very similar and it can be demographics of of that area the type of people that go into the store sometimes the inventory heaps of different like the opening hours and then you go but in these things they're really different Um, and and when you show that to people with the domain knowledge what I've seen is that like, they, jump, they jump out of the seat and, they, and sometimes they go, I knew it. I knew that there was something going on. Now I can see it. And one of, one of the examples, uh, we we're presenting that to a, a CEO of a retail chain and they, they have many, many stores around Australia and New Zealand. And, um, and we showed them one of these comparisons. He jumped out and he's like, I knew it. I knew it. Um, it's the inventory that needs to change. And we didn't have inventory, we only had financials. So I was like, how did you get to inventory? And he goes, well, you're telling me that this bottom performing store is getting these type of customers um, and that that is a difference that it has with the high performing store. He's like, I know that the inventory that we have in that store doesn't match to the customer profile that's going to that store. Literally got the head um, head of merchandise on the phone, change that inventory. And then over the coming months, we saw the sales pick up and that store became not all, like in the time that we were analyzing, it didn't go all the way to a high-performing store, but it went from like bottom quintile to like um, the second best over, over a few months. And it's like, anyway, the transformation is great, but the, the approach is um, ML for insights instead of prediction. And when you're using ML for insights, um, for example, is is fine because you're not losing, you're not using it to predict the the future. You're trying to get it to tell you what's what's in the data.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I I like your examples too, Um, you know, because people can learn from data and they need to, but another thing that we need to do is also help them be more data literate and how to understand and make sense of that data. So that's something that's really important too. And also get access to that data. You know, companies and organizations have vast amounts of data, continues to grow, but you're not for a lot of different reasons, you know, security, privacy, different concerns. You don't always get access to that data. So we found that at organizations, we need to really talk about that and say, okay, well, if you get a little bit more data, can you get additional insights? And this is why you need it and to make it really important and valuable. And you're right. You need to make sure that you have the correct people in the conversation because if that guy wasn't in that uh, situation, then you might not have people who would be able to take their domain knowledge and expertise and be able to help apply additional insights. So it's always important to make sure that you have the correct people in your AI projects as well. And we talk about that uh, and how it's critically important, especially within each phase of the methodology to make sure that you have those people there. At Cognolytica, we always like to talk about AI within the seven patterns of AI. Um, and we think that that's really important because when you're talking about AI, you may be talking about, you know, an autonomous vehicle, and I may be talking about an AI-enabled chatbot, Ron may be talking about a predictive maintenance system. And they're all, you know, those broad umbrella applications of AI, but they're not the same thing. So we say, you know, it also helps shortcut projects. And also we talked about which algorithms to pick. Well, Not every algorithm is the right algorithm for that problem. So understand what it is you're trying to do, and then you can pick different algorithms based on that. You know, you had also talked about, well, you know, figure out how accurate you want to be. Sometimes... (laughs) You know, just a decision tree is a great solution, Uh, depending on the application as well. You may not need to be uh, very accurate. Maybe 80 percent accurate is an acceptable threshold. So you need to set that, too. And then that, you know, a a lot of different things come into play with that. what, you know, with the data that you need and the algorithm that you select and how often you retrain the model. Um, So, you know, all of that is incredibly important. And maybe I'll let Ron talk a little bit about the seven patterns and, and what they are and why they're so important.
2: Yeah. It's really interesting because if you're doing, for example, trying to train a model to detect spam, you have a Bayesian classifier. It is perfectly fine. You're trying to do a sentiment analysis. We've been using support vector machines for A long time, they work very well. Uh, You talk about random forests. We love boosted trees for a lot of things. For example, if you're, we have a couple of really interesting stories. Uh, You know, for example, product recommendation. You know, if you're trying to basically recommend a product, you know, we have moved to machine learning models to do this. But, you know, back in the day when Amazon first came out, they just used product categories. So it's like, you're in the camping category, someone buys a tent, I will recommend other products in the camping category. Or I will just simply look at what other customers who have bought products in that category have also brought. And I will basically just do a very simple rank. So it's like nine times out of 10, someone bought a tent, they also bought a lantern or something like that. Okay, great. Well, I will recommend it. There's no machine learning there. It's simple data correlation. And actually Amazon t- themselves tells the story because when they were rolling out Amazon Prime, their uh, movie a service, they wanted to basically do movie recommendations so or, or show recommendations. And they had a very, very hard, people were coming up with models, their own great data scientists. Trust me, Amazon's been, they got some data scientists over there. If they can squeeze money out of something, they will do it because yeah, that's yeah. the business that they are in. And they were having a very hard time beating basically the heuristic, the dumb model, which was just recommend the top 10 most popular movies or whatever shows in a category. No, no algorithm needed. So it's like, yeah, they just yeah. count. They just count literally count the number of times people watch something, been like and sort by the number of times and reverse, you know, sort and be like, that's what they recommend. And they were trying all these models, they're doing A B testing, and they're like, No model performed better in terms of increasing the click rate. That's what they were trying to measure, or the view count, or whatever it was. It took them like many, many, many iterations for them to finally find a model that did work out better. But actually, it's interesting to go, this is sort of like the cautionary tale, which is like, well, sometimes you know, finding the the best model isn't actually really isn't the best, you know? You know, when we talk about that, <laughs> we talk about the patterns because, um, you know, there are other, we do try to use these, these techniques of AI for solving different kinds of problems and they are not always the same. Predictive analytics and, pr- and decision support is one kind of problem where we're trying to use machines to help us make better decisions. But pattern and anomaly detection is actually a separate pattern, which is either finding the things that Fits or finding the things that are exceptions, the things that don't fit, right? The anomalies. But conversational patterns is a different thing. You know, what if I'm trying to build a conversational model, whether it's NLP, understanding what the user is saying, or NLG, which is now all of a sudden becoming so popular with GPT-3, the purpose of that is really to facilitate human-machine, machine-human, and human-human communication. It's very different. Um, sort of problem. Recognition, you know, that's kind of what kicked all this off the ImageNet and all that image recognition was about trying to, to help uh, really, honestly, it's about processing unstructured data. That's really what it's all about. We have all these images, these videos, these emails, and, and it's very hard to, to query them. This, they're not structured. So, can we basically come up with an approach where I could automatically classify them or automatically do these things? And there's a whole kind of series of problems that get solved. Now, in each, and there's also two other, three other patterns. There's the hyper personalization pattern, which is part of what we were just talking about, which is that treat each um, person or each system as its own thing, build the profile, and then basically try to find the optimal for that profile. Then there's the goal driven system. So, just sort of like playing. You know, finding the solution to the maze, You know, the deep mind thing. And then the final one, of course, is the autonomous pattern, which are systems that are supposed to operate with little or no human interaction. Mm-hmm. It turns out each of those patterns have very different sets of requirements for things like accuracy. With, for patterns and anomalies, it's about finding the outlier. So the accuracy depends on kind of what the outlier is. If it's cybersecurity and you're trying to detect fraud, then you may have one sort of sensitivity. If it's product recommendations, you're like, ah, you know, being... Five percent wrong. What does that mean? Maybe the conversion rates are lower. Maybe not. Um, so, and, and then I think I have one other interesting story here because it gets to the retail point. We were actually Kathleen and I spoke at a at a uh, retail oriented. It was actually really a construction conference. Uh-huh. Um, and on that panel was this was was a company that basically uses machine learning to help find locations for new retail um, yeah. establishments. Yes. Basically, best you know, find the best sites. The problems they run into is when they have these new concepts. So uh, there, there is a company there that's in the float spa business, which is uh, I've never been to one, but I guess you can float and be sensory deprived. And they're like, where do we, where do we put this? Uh, where do we, where do we cite these sto- these stores? And what they found is that there is an affinity: stores that are floating tend to be located near massage um, and massage yeah. envy places. And they just found that there's this natural affinity, and the models help them. Basically, find it out, and be, and that's what they're doing. They're using the models for insight, and basically say, "What what is this most like when it's not so obvious?" Right.
0: I love question. it. Oh man, so many things there uh, for what you guys have said. That that I love. Um, I love the the discussion and what Kathleen was saying about data literacy. Um, I think that that's that's a key one to to drive. And I think personal views that I think as an industry we could we can do it better. Um, and maybe maybe we can talk about that. Um, in, in a little bit. I love the Amazon example and I love um, the simplicity of it. Um, and I know that um, in, in other cases, Amazon has been in, in a bit of bit of hot water um, with the simplicity that they're... Um, oh, so in, in a bit of hot water, but then people didn't realize that there were such simple approaches in the background. Um, one other one is uh, also around Prime, Amazon Prime, but this is for the quick delivery side. When they were launching that, they started with the... Um, by getting the areas, the um, the um, well, we call it postcodes. Um, you guys call it, call it area codes? No.
2: Yeah, zip, codes. Zip, zip codes.
0: zip codes. That's the one I was yeah. looking for. Yeah. So they they ended up getting like a count of um, of orders in the last twelve months by zip code, and then said we'll launch Prime in the zip codes that have the most number number of orders. Um, and that was kind of like their approach. Like just a quick. SQL statement, um, and then people were like, "Oh, that that AI uh, is like negative or or it's it's biased or things like that." Um, and, and the simple like I, I love the simple approaches to to solve a problem. And then also it's an MVP. Like it's kind of like, "Hey guys, we're just getting started. <laughs> this is like step one out of a thousand. Um, just hang on with us, and we'll get there." But we wanted to get this this snowball rolling rolling early, um, so that's really good. Um, I also love your Ron, your, your point about um, hyper-personalization and those, those recommendations, amazing. Um, at the moment I'm working in a, in a healthcare AI uh, company and um, that's, that's our, our focus. Um, and what I find is that in, in healthcare, I used to work in finance before this for, for a long time and, and only been in healthcare for a couple of years now. And um, in healthcare, what I find is that the focus of AI is largely on diagnostics. So machine vision, um, uh, looking at, at how, uh, like radiology, cardiology, what, what disease, uh, x-rays, what disease does this person have? And it's kind of like very point in time. So for the people that get this, or the people that, that get this test, or the people that get this test, um, and the approach that we're taking is, is a, a system-wide um, so, kind of like the other side, um, that if you don't focus on point in time, you can focus on system wide and following the journey um, of, of a person through the healthcare system with the different um, interactions, the different interventions that they get, the different um, people that they see through their journey, and the different recommendations. And then, once you essentially get work to digitize that path and get um, information to create feedback loops, which is largely about outcomes, outcomes that people are getting, where you have to ask them, then you can start um, giving people recommendations on their journey and, and where they should go to next and how to go through the, um, the maze that, that is the healthcare system sometimes. And, um, and that's, that's Yeah, proving like a really interesting um, problem space as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, for sure. And we talk a lot about, it's kind of interesting because we talked about the two areas where we are seeing hyper-personalization being applied the most successfully is actually in finance. We talked about that and in healthcare. Yeah. And um, I, I honestly, actually, AI has actually been getting into a bit of difficulty, trouble with, uh, diagnostics, the use of it, recognition, specifically IBM Watson, it's kind of notoriously overstated uh, their abilities here. And there was for a while the radiology associations and uh, had assumed that AI systems would, would do the first pass, but now they're all kind of backing away from it. The error rates high and missing things. So Um, you know, there's sort of less interest in that. Ironically, of course, though, um, AI systems are really good at the hyper personalization. What, what the recommendations I would give you for, for behavior, for treatment, for nutrition, exercise, mental well-being, you know, all of that really is very specific to you. Like the time that you wake up in the morning, I'm not going to be recommending you go up and, you know, do like, you know, heavy weightlifting at 6. AM if, if you can't wake up before seven. So, or, or it might be like. Yeah. Yeah. Some people like the early morning run. That's a Kathleen. Some people like the work working out at 9 PM, you know, Um, same thing, you know, different people have different diets, you know, and so, you know, you can't, one size clearly just doesn't fit all. Right. And that's really what, what these systems are good at. They could say, oh, they could find the correlations and say, Oh, you know, you're you're just like Netflix. It's like you're interested in these things because of your browsing history. Then you could say the same thing with medicine. Um, You know, these are things that will work for you based on your history. And the same thing in finance. If I'm trying to help you save for a goal or invest something, I could see your spending behavior. I could see that, you know, you just you just you just like those five dollar lattes every day. I'm not going to kick that habit. We'll have the, the health conversation separately, but from a finance perspective. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I could tell you, hey, that's $150, $200 a month. And, you know, you could probably put that money away to save your, for, pay your whatever that you need to pay off. And that would help a lot. And like, oh, well, thanks for that recommendation. So it's, it's these are the, this is the interesting. These are the very practical ways in which AI and machine learning are providing benefit today. And when we talk about AI today, that's why we're so surprised that the companies that that have like been running into, into challenges were like, well, how does it work so well in yeah. this, Relatively trivial example, and you're you're just having such a hard time. You know, it's cl- clearly uh, the the mismatch between all the things we had we had talked about. So you know, we're sort of pounding it. We hope 2021 and 2022 are the year that it sort of like really clicks in. <laughs> yeah, right. It, like that,
0: and I think I think that we're we're getting there. We're making good good progress. Um, but I think as a um, as a, as an industry, we. Uh, and th- this again, this is just one dude's view, like one dude's point of view. Um, in my opinion, I think that we need to do a better explanation of how people can get involved in the process and add value. What we've been doing is uh, data literacy programs where we say, um, you know, uh, learn how to make dashboards or learn how to do SQL queries, um, learn a bit about the, the machine learning algorithms, and then you'll be a better stakeholder. You'd be able to have the conversation, jump in the project, add value, um, help, help with your domain expertise or, or business knowledge. And I kind of think that we're, we're not highlighting enough the, the critical pieces that, um, that is, it comes down to the data set that, that we are going to be, well, first of all, it comes down to the business problem, as you guys said. Once we have agreement on that, when we come to the to the technical delivery, it comes down to the data set. Like what data do we have or should we put in here to, to help make make this uh, prediction or optimization? Part A. And then part B is like, what are we trying to predict? What are we trying to optimize? What's what's our, our one thing that we're trying to um, trying to do? And I think that um, often we we jump. As, I think, as Kathleen was saying, that we jump into these projects um, without that clarity, and we kind of like try to stumble our way into into clarity. And as a result, like means that, that our projects drag out, that we are not able to to sometimes even get to the to hitting the mark. But in the in the technical delivery um, phase, like I reckon, it's it's all about those those two things. And then once you have your your AI product, then we talk about. Um, the supply chain, like getting it to users, and then getting the adoption, and getting people to, to change their their routines, their behaviors. Um, and in in that space, I've I've seen some really nice um, suggestions from from people that I've had in in the podcast. Where there was uh, one guy that just uh, his story stuck out, um, still um, sticks with me. That he works in uh, the energy sector, and they have uh, natural gas plants, and they had um like 20,000 sensors in, in a natural gas plant. And they were uploading all the data in real time onto the cloud, crunching it, coming back with recommendations for the operators. And when they went to provide those recommendations, um, what I loved about this is that they didn't just hit everyone with the recommendation. Ron, do this, Kathleen, do this, Felipe, do this. What they said was like, they essentially put iPads all over the um, all over the plant. And what it said was, Hey Ron, um, when you were doing this shift two weeks ago, you were doing, you were running this plant at a 2% 2 better, 2% more effective. You were doing this two weeks ago. Would you like to know what you were doing differently? Click here for yes. You could leave it, you could take it, no Hmm. judgment. So then obviously some people took it, some people didn't, some people were talking, They did that for a year, Mm -hmm. for a year, and then they moved into phase two, which was instead of comparing yourself, you versus you, then they expanded to say um, you versus others in this shift. So, um, hey, Kathleen, other people that, uh, or you and other people that have done this exact shift have gotten 3% more output from this plan. Would you like to know what they did? Yes, bang, another year. And obviously in the background, it's working with the people, educating, user adoption, uh, making sure that people know that they're not gonna get replaced um, and and getting them comfortable and and essentially getting to a point where the majority of people are opting in. So that was year two and then year three, the recommendation straight away. Mm -hmm. People could choose to ignore them, but the recommendation was there and it was open. And, um, and the, I, I, I particularly love that delivery because it created intrigue on mm-hmm. what it could be and it started with you versus you and that yeah. they, they, took, they took the time to create the change.
1: Together. I think they were also starting to build trust as well, right? Because if people don't trust these systems, if they're fearful of them, then they're not going to want to use them. And that's another thing that we run into a lot. You know, people fear uh, automation, people fear AI. They think it's going to take their jobs. They feel threatened by that. And, you know, you, you need to work with people and say, we're not trying to replace you. We're trying to have you do your job better. And this is what we're bringing into place so we can do that, you know, there's certain tasks, certain uh things that people do on a daily basis that really they shouldn't be doing. You should automate that, you know? You don't need to be pressing a button every minute on the minute for 60 minutes, you know, something like that, where it's like, ah. this isn't what I hired you for. I can automate that process. So we, you know, I like your example. We we think about that as this idea of augmented intelligence, where you're not replacing the human, but you're helping them do their job better. So you're taking the best of what humans can do and the best of what, you know, AI and computers can do and combine it together so that this person that you're not replacing just gets to do their job better because, you know, the system's helping them with various tasks and recommending different things to them, you know, maybe uh, depending on what the role is, all of uh, that changes, obviously. Uh, But we like to think about this idea of augmented intelligence. And we say that that's a great first place to start because you can really provide a lot of value. It provides immediate ROI and you can see immediate results. And also you're building trust with these people in your organization because you do value your employees and the knowledge that they bring into the organization.
2: Yeah, I think the other interesting thing here is that um, you know, people uh, have this, this desire. I, I think the, we, we talk about this, about taking the robot out of the human. It's sort of like this this unusual thing. It's like usually people do a, a job, they have a job, right? I love but that. but. But their work, it's like saying, like their work and their job aren't the same. People like those terms seem to be interchangeable, but they're not really interchangeable. It's sort of like, well, your job is customer satisfaction, but you spend half of your time, the work that you do, entering stuff into a database or filling out a form or doing this sort of thing, which is necessary because perhaps, it won't work without it, but that that's not really your job. It's like your job is the other part. And actually what we'd like to do is recover more of your time so you can really do more of your job. It's that um, the automation paradox, and it really has been a paradox. It, actually, the world is one big living paradox right now yeah. in many ways. It, um, again, we'll bring up Amazon only because they make so much news news. But uh, New York Times did a study when Amazon introduced their Kiva robots, the the, the robots that were in their warehouses to do the uh, pick and pack and help with all that sort of stuff. And people had anticipated that would mean that uh, warehouse employment would probably either stay the same or go down. But actually, the, the paradox is that as Amazon was increasing their use of the machines, their uh, employment was going up. So it's sort of like automation was going up and employment was going up, which you would not correlate. You would say that does, that doesn't seem right, right? Well, that's because what they were doing is they were using the people to do all these things that they couldn't have done because they're spending all their time just taking boxes off of a shelf and or taking something and putting it in a box, which is really like the worst use of of, of human time. It's like this is not what we're good at. You can use machines for that, and and that's exactly what, what they did. And so and so this this paradox kind of goes along many 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 places, and, it, and the, the world is the one weird paradox now because. Uh, here we we actually have this unusual situation. I think it's worldwide. It's definitely in the US and maybe in Australia where where we have actually um low employment numbers, but companies are having a are, are also having a hard time finding people to to do very um you know to, to do everything from hospitality, restaurants, delivery, supply chain. And actually a lot of companies are are facing Issues with their business, not because of high costs or low demand. They have enough demand. The problem is that they can't supply the demand. It's the strangest thing. And like, what has changed in the world? Well, turns out there's lots and lots and lots of factors. But (laughs) um, that's why we say, like, don't worry. The last thing you get to worry about is a robot taking your job because people can't hire enough. So it's it's like, and it's the jobs that people would have thought would have been. Uh, automated first, there might be pressure now, ironically, because of low labor supply, Hmm. there might be pressure now to, to increase automation, but it's not because of high labor cost. That's the thing that people thought it would be. Oh, it's too expensive for me to hire a person. No, no, no. They can't hire a person, even if they increase the labor price, they can't hire that person. So I guess we got to use robots because what other choice do we have? We don't want to go out of business, right?
0: So so true. So true. Same thing happening here where, um, yeah, I, I, I um, the way that I see it is that uh, a job is there to solve a problem or fulfill a need. Um, we've got lots of problems to solve <laughs> in the world, and we, as humans, we've got more and more needs every day. Like our expectations are continually rising. There's always, there's always going to be another another gap. Uh, I totally agree with you that, um, that the the. The so sort of the job apocalypse. Um, I I don't see it. I don't see it coming in either. I do. I do love um, um, the the way that you describe it in terms of taking the the robot out of the job. I think that is ace, and that's definitely where where we need to move into. So um, people are able to add uh, more more value uh, and spend spend the time where they should be.
2: Well, 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 I mean, Kathleen and I, I mean, we'd like to talk about this we'll have you on our podcast. So that, that's sort of like the other thing. We're doing this little podcast swap here. So for our listeners of your of your podcast, you should know that we're interviewing Felipe on our podcast. We have a bunch of questions that we'll be digging into on the AI Today podcast. Maybe it's a good good time for us to mention. I don't know if we talked a little bit about it. I think we were talking about, it. it's been around for about four years and now going into our fifth year. But um, we're really focusing, you know, our audience are trying to focus on the people trying to put this in technology, AI into practice. And um, it's very strange to say this as much as, you know, we love AI, we, we you know, we're, we we're, you know, really fans of kind of where AI can be, but we're also realists and that it's like, you know, at the end of the day, you know, in order for this technology to stick around and be successful, it has to be providing tangible benefits, or we'll just find ourselves where we always find ourselves with AI, which is that it's of interest, it bubbles up and we, we're so excited and I could do all these things. And then like eh, six, seven, eight years later, we're like, it didn't work Overpromise, promise the, all these crazy AGI people doing crazy things. <laughs> and then, and then we go back to doing enterprise databases or whatever is the mm-hmm. hot thing, cloud, you know, uh, stuff. And, and we kind of go back to it and we'll be back here again in 10, 15 years from now. So, or 20. Um, but, but, but we're, we're fans of it. It's almost kind of um. Uh, weird in some ways that we're using the term AI for for many of the things that we're talking about that we would we would maybe not have necessarily ascribed the intelligent machine to to better predictive analytics and pattern and anomaly detection and you know uh, boosted trees uh, <laughs> but, it is also true that a lot of the problems that are sort of classical AI problems have to do with things like understanding human speech. We had a we had a, a um, podcast uh, interview with uh, the Applied AI Pod podcast where um, the host uh, she asked us. She goes, um, "Well, is the Turing test still relevant?" And um, you know, that's a really very good question because uh, you could argue that uh, with GPT three and a whole bunch of things, we're doing a good job of fooling humans. Uh, that machines are are the ones having the conversation. So does, is that a true test of machine intelligence? And you know, th- things are probably things are probably changing there. But it's kind of strange that for a long time, the test of is a machine intelligent was about conversations. Yeah. yeah. And now we're like, oh, we've solved that, you know, two years ago, but we don't have intelligent machines. So, you know, I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we actually had a... Another podcast uh, with the hosts from the Harvard Data Science Review podcast, and they were saying, you know, uh, start to really be scared when AI can tell a joke and it makes sense. (laughs) <laughs> because there's a lot of different things that come into play. Like, yes, you have to get natural language, but you have to also have common sense and reasoning and understand what a joke is and what makes it funny uh, and get people's reactions. So that was really interesting because, you know, we said we have a, a long way to go before we we get to there. But once an AI can tell a joke, then be scared. So uh, yeah. is the Turing I, test relevant? Maybe that should be the new one.
0: <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. I watched, um, I watched a video that... Um generated by an AI that consumed like thousands of hours of standard comedy on YouTube. And um, the video was rendered. So there was like a guy on a stage and there was the audience um, and he was telling jokes and um, the and he bombed in the middle. Like he started really well. The audience was loving it. Then he bombed in the middle and then he brought it back in. And uh, some of the jokes were terrible. Um, There's a couple in there that like I had a chuckle and I was like, this is pretty good. <laughs> and I think, I think now that there's kind of uh, as you were saying, more with the generation side of, of text that where um, a- AI is is able to write. Um, then uh, yeah, I think I think that uh, jokes are, are not, not a far stretch from where things are today. In my personal view, just one dude's opinion. Um, but I think that we naturally, as humans, we keep moving the goalpost that whatever is out of reach that's ai like that's the machine intelligence and whatever is in reach ah oh, that's solved um, at one point it was chess right ah oh, like if a machine can play chess we're doomed it's over we could just pack and go home and then the, singular, the singularity <laughs> deep blue. Um, and and then they were like okay well we still got jobs um, we're able to get more value from this technology. Um, it's not—it's not this magical realm. Uh, and I think I think we're seeing well more and more innovations um, of that ilk. Um, you know, in the in the past decade, with with AlphaGo or with the protein folding, like this stuff that is gonna revolutionize our, our our lives in ten years, in twenty years, that are are things that are breakthrough today i think that uh, gpt3 is is another another great example that you know in a year in years to come definitely in a in a decade from now we're going to look back and say shit look at all these things that we're able to get because of um the the protein folding um algorithm that DeepMind created and then released (laughs) um which is amazing or or because of gpt3 and and um so, yeah, I, th- I think that uh, in general, we will continue to move the goalposts. Whatever is out of reach is is AI and, and will seem magical. Um, it, whatever Whatever's in reach is is solved. One of the ones that happened in the last, say, five years or so that I've been personally looking forward to for a long time was going from text to an image and image mm. to text. So to say, like, I want to see a bird with... Uh, um, like brown chest and black wings and a yellow beak on this on this tree. You type that, and then the image appears. I was like, "That's gonna be magical," and then it happened, and I was like, "Not so magical," like. <laughs> but I love it. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's things that are that are chipping away at the at the progress that we need to make. Um, and I think that um there there always be a need for, for. Human creativity to sit on top of that, and to and to think about um, what what is actually the problem that we're trying to solve. What is the data that should go into it? What should we be optimizing for? Um, because there's there's things that haven't happened. There's spaces that haven't been explored that need to be explored. So not um, the data that is that is kind of like backward looking or using what already exists to to predict the future. Um, Super helpful, obviously, like revolutionizing every industry out there, um, but it wouldn't have been able to give us um, Cirque du Soleil, mm-hmm. right? Where this, if you think of Cirque du Soleil as, as being in the circus industry, circus industry had been in decline for over a hundred years. Um, the, the moves that the industry had made was to have more rings in the tent, uh, to travel, to um, have animals, to have all this type of stuff. And then the, the human innovation was to say, how about we flip this on its head and we go high-end, expensive, one ring, super talented people, um, and then we, we travel with that and no animals. Um, and, it, and it's something that um, the making that, that leap and making that work um, in the world as a business opportunity um, is, is not something that I think AI uh, can, definitely can, can't do now, maybe not, not in the, in the short to medium term. Um, and that's, that's where I see that, you know, humans are continue to be, um, adding value under where we should focus on in the, in the creative side of what the world could be by understanding what we all want to need.
2: Yeah, perfect. Well, that's sort of a great way to kind of wrap things up here and maybe something we could tackle on, on a future podcast. You know, I, I, I sort of like the, um, Uh, the challenges of of making all this work. And we could talk a little bit about the (laughs) fact that privacy is a sort of privacy as an idea may actually be antiquated at this point. There may there may not really be a notion of privacy anymore. The thing that we're starting to see is actually probably a bigger casualty now that the privacy train has already left the station is, uh, um, I guess the word is genuineness. I don't know what the what's the right what's the right uh, adjective for that. It's like what are things truly genuine because with with especially with AI, you really can't believe anything you see, you hear, you read, and and like now, like there was this, I just saw another place. There's a there's a machine that will like that like writes like letters that looks like they're handwritten, you know, but like doesn't use the handwriting font. Like it actually uses like a, a writing yeah. thing, yeah. and it's like someone's like I'm using it to write thank you letters, but it's like. You know, or, or there's this other thing where we saw this company that has a video that'll basically just record one video saying thank you to a customer. And then it basically takes that and uses deepfakes to create these deepfake thank you videos. It's like, now you can send personalized thank you messages. I'm like... It comes at the price of you know what? Nothing is really genuine anymore. Social media, we know, is not genuine. Instagram is all a bunch of fake. So it's like you can't. It's like you, it's like it's like we we're losing that too. That's a whole other conversation. We don't have to have it here now. But <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, you know, people may, maybe we'll start to see maybe we'll start to see some laws around data genuine genuineness. I don't even know what the right word is for that. I know it's not privacy. Yeah. That's I'm- a whole other concept. Mm-hmm. And at
1: Cognolytica too, we talk about ethical and responsible AI and the uses for that as well. And, uh, you know, we have some education around that and training as well, because when you're building these systems, you need to make sure that you are building them in a responsible and ethical way, you know, and, and not intentionally trying to do harm. So we think that that's just as incredibly important as methodology as well, you know, so, so. Do AI, do AI right with the methodology, but also build it in a responsible and ethical way. And so we think that that's incredibly important and that's why we have also training around that.
2: She's actually got me thinking, it's like doing AI right. So it's like doing AI right methodology, but also doing AI right. Hey. Being right, responsible. Doing I like
0: AI. it. Why the facepalm <laughs> Kathleen? I love
2: it. <laughs> <Two side laughs> the same coin, two sides of the yes! same
0: coin yeah i totally agree that brings this episode to conclusion thank you so much for listening please find us on datafuturology.com or on facebook twitter linkedin or instagram as datafuturology also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.